Welcome to the BC Messenger. This is the February 2023 episode, uh, episode number seven. And we are very thankful that you have joined us for this podcast and that you've taken the time to listen in as we get into some pretty amazing stuff. As a matter of fact, if you get the email link that takes you to our podcast online show notes, there's a photo on this particular issue that shows a picture of Mount Sinai. And you may say, of Mount Sinai? Yes, we'll get into more details of that again in just a minute. But it is a photo taken in Israel at the water reservoir near Mount Sinai. And boy, it's a beautiful picture. This time in February, as the desert warmth of that photo really looks pretty inviting, Jennifer, here at the beginning of this cold month. At yeah, least right here sounds in great. Yeah. Really makes me want to go visit Israel like we talked about last time. Yeah, definitely. Well, we hope that you're going to find this month's roundup of content to be heartwarming and warming to the soul and stimulating to the mind as we consider some of the works of God that are recorded in history, along with some of the ways that he's at work today. Psalm 111 verse 4 talks about how God has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and he is merciful. And boy, it is such a blessing to be able to see these accounts of God in the Bible and how he worked amongst his people and how he's writing this story in history. And what a blessing to be able to now see it in real world history as we're able to share these things with you on the BC Messenger as these discoveries are being communicated here in many different areas of research. For our monthly roundup today, we have drawn in quite a collage of content for you, leading off with the true Mount Sinai, as Steve was just making reference to with the photograph from Israel, and we'll be discussing the true mountain of God called Mount Sinai in Scripture. Then we are moving into some research updates, uh, both with the anti-aging vitamins and with the manna. After that, we will have Aging 101, Lesson 3, followed by a testimonial from Hannah, who has been benefiting from the anti-aging vitamins, and she is 23 years old. And then a quote of note, which is an old saying of the Pennsylvania Dutch. Then closing out our program today, we have Helen's View, which so many of you enjoy. And today she's going to be telling us a miracle story of God's provision for them very early in their marriage. All right, very good. Well, let's talk about Mount Sinai. And we've seen that Exodus pottery, we're calling it Exodus pottery. I hope you've been with us as we have come through these seven different podcasts. If you haven't, we always want to encourage you to go back and listen to the archives. But we have found Exodus pottery in the wilderness And we found it because we are at 2450 B.C., not the traditional date of 1450 B.C. When you get the chronology right, when you get the date right, it's amazing what you find. But this has led us to the actual route of the Exodus and the location of the Red or Reed Sea Crossing at Lake Bardawil. If you're just jumping in here on these podcasts, you may say, wow, that's quite the claims. And it is quite the claims, 
but it's backed by substantial evidence, not just one thing here or there, not just a, you know, we, well, we, we found something that looks like something, so we're, we're wrapping everything we believe around that. No, our point is this continues to build. This keeps building, and we are now today arriving at Mount Sinai, the real true Mount Sinai that folks have been trying to find for many years. And the way we got here was by finding Exodus pottery by going to the right time frame, around 2450 B.C., so, last episode, we talked about the Red Sea or Reed Sea crossing at Lake Bardawil, and now we're following the trail of pottery shards, and we come to the base of a low-lying mountain. And let me say that again, a low-lying mountain. So many of the things that we find out in, from the Bible that are true are so different from the way we always imagined them or thought them or or even Sunday school lessons of Mount Sinai has always been the idea of this imposing uh, big massive dramatic dramatic mountain tallest mountain in the region that Moses climbed and got the Ten Commandments and we get our ideas from of course from uh, Hollywood and movies and and pictures and drawings and and so often when we come to the truth we find that it wasn't quite like we thought and here's an example of that we we find a low-lying mountain. The desert plain below this mountain that we're going to point you to today is literally littered with pottery shards. The Exodus pottery shards that we have been describing and talking about, the same style and dates as the other sites with our Exodus pottery. We've arrived at the biblical Mount Sinai. This mountain correlates closely with the biblical account. For example, the Bama. Now, you may not be very familiar with that term Bama, but it's the same as saying a high place or where, where people of ancient times would have built an altar. And of course, we understand that's exactly what Moses did at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb in the Bible. There's the Bama where Moses stood. We can still see it today, the, the area where that was, where he addressed the people and that place is visible from the entire plain below it. So a number of different mountains have been proposed to be the true Mount Sinai. Again, as you said, uh, Jen, usually very dramatic, very imposing mountains. A search on Google will quickly reveal several proposed candidates. Christianity.com states this, There are many speculated locations as the location of Mount Sinai. And that certainly has been the case. Many of our listeners are probably familiar with the Patterns of Evidence film series, Uh, And one of their newer films is called Journey to Sinai. Now, I haven't seen that particular film, but we have uh, seen at least one other that they have produced. So as I was looking at the notes for our podcast here today, I wondered, you know, which mountain do they talk about on the Journey to Sinai from Patterns of Evidence? So I, I looked online and read up a little bit, and I found out that they are not actually talking about one mountain as the true Mount Sinai, but they are proposing six different mountain candidates. And they provide the viewer of the film with a scorecard that the viewer can use to help decide which mountain they think is the best candidate based on different types of evidence that they're looking for at these different sites that are talked about on the film. There were quite a bit of different 
criteria listed there on that scorecard. But I did find it interesting that there was nothing about the dates of the sites and nothing about pottery found at the sites, which here at the Biblical Chronologist is really the acid test that we have to put any proposed location of biblical events and and archaeological finds have to be dated. And we have to find out if the chronology and the dating of the site matches up. So all of this evaluating different candidates and what about this and what about that, it's also unnecessary when the chronology is corrected. And in fact, we do find one single mountain, which fulfills all the criteria that are biblically necessary and sheds quite a bit of light on the biblical account. Right. It was all the way back in 1995 that Dr. Gerald Ardsma proposed a new candidate, a new mountain that had never been put forward as the true Mount Sinai before, but has since been corroborated by a convincing body of evidence. These features include a water source, a plain large enough for millions of Israelites and their animals to camp, located within the proper distance from Egypt and remains that most importantly date to the time of the Exodus. The name of the mountain today is not Mount Sinai, but it is called Mount Yeraham, and it is located near the modern-day town of Yeraham there in Israel. And in fact, Dr. Ardsma did travel there back in 2000. As I recall, it was pretty quickly after he was able to identify it as the true Mount Sinai, learning about all the archaeology that had been done there. And he wanted to visit it as quickly as he could so that he could document it in the form that it was at that time. Since it's not recognized as the true Mount Sinai, uh, the site is not being preserved as it should be with all the biblical importance. The mountain of the Lord is talked about so much through the Old Testament. In fact, it's uh, the same mountain where Moses saw the burning bush, and it's the same mountain where Elijah um, experienced the true and living God out in the wilderness as well. So it's so important to biblical history, and he was able to go there and record many of the things he saw. If you want to read up directly on the report that he gave after he went there, we will put a link in the show notes to the Biblical Chronologist Newsletter, Volume 6, Number 4. It's really something how this mountain in this area really does correlate to the biblical account. And if you want to check checkboxes off, this is the mountain to go to. You can get more details on this on the website and the newsletters. For example, this particular area just has a massive plain below the mountain where you could easily see millions of people with all of their livestock. There's a natural water source there. You can see this area on Google Maps. You can go visit Yeraham today. There is a part of the mountain, as, as we've already mentioned, where there is a bama. Uh, the bama is the high place that, that you can see a, pictures For example, on a website that I went to visit not long ago called BibleWalks.com, and we'll just put a little plug in for this website on our podcast here today, it's a family in Israel, I believe, who does this website, and they have researched and put online all kinds of information about 
ancient biblical sites in the Bible and in ancient uh, sites where archaeologists have found things. Now, they obviously don't call this Mount Sinai, but it's just fascinating to go and read up on the archaeology, see the pictures of, of Yerahim and Mount Yerahim, and see how that correlates with the biblical account. Again, for instance, there's this, this circular area on top of one of these uh, I, I want to call it a peak. It's not a peak of the mountain. It's actually at the foot of the mountain. It's really at the foot, <clears throat> right. which we were reading in Exodus there about how Moses went up and built this area at the foot of the mountain. Right. Now, Dr. Arzma has been there and went up to the Bama and said that it was a steep climb up to the Bama, but not very far. So right. it was elevated enough that Moses was standing there and all the people on the plane below could have seen him, right. but would not have been able to possibly hear him very well. We're not sure about that. But then the some of the elders and groups of people all went up with him to this Bama area, which... Dr. Ardsma said that he wouldn't have expected children to go up because the climb was pretty steep. But there was enough of a group of people there that went up, and they were the ones that Moses sprinkled the blood on from the sacrifices as he was making this covenant between God and the people. Right. And the cup holes well, right. are one of the most fascinating things. Right. We'll get to that in a second. But again, just a little bit more of a description to get to the place where Moses would have actually talked to God was even more of a climb. So again, the Bama is a high place, but Moses would have climbed even higher on up the mountain, Mount Yerahim, where he spoke with the Lord. And um, there's another area there beside this Bama, another little peak beside of it, that would have been the Kenite settlement. There's excavations and there's uh, settlements that they know were there in ancient times. They don't know who these people were, but again, correlates perfectly with the biblical account. Right. That there is, and, and there's copper in that place that's been discovered. And of course, if you know the Bible story, the Kenites were uh, coppersmiths. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, right. was from Midian. And the interactions there between the Israelites and the Kenites, who were providing metalworks, presumably for the Israelites to go up into battle when they were going to enter Canaan. And there we have on Mount Sinai, on another side of the mountain, uh, the Kenite settlement that has been excavated. And the archaeologist said, suggests a metalworking industry. And yes, let's go back to the cup holes, uh, right in this Bama, in this high place. Right, back to the holy high yeah. place where Moses built this altar. Now, when Dr. Artsma was there, he said uh, there was just a rock wall surrounding the area and some of the cup holes in the rock. If you know the biblical account, you see where Moses was told of God to do the blood sacrifices with the animals and where the covenant was made and the blood was sprinkled. And you can see again the cut marks in the surface there, which we believe are what the Bible called basins and where the blood was sprinkled with the covenant that uh, God made with his people. It's fascinating to see this. It really is. And I tell you, you, you go and read the account of Dr. Ardsma's visit there to the mountain. You look at it on BibleWalks.com, and then you open your Bible, and you read these accounts, and it's just incredible to see and 
experience God's work in history in such a real, tangible way. We don't have to be sitting there doing guesswork. Uh, I wonder if it was this. I wonder if it was that. But instead, we can have a good degree of certainty based upon the modern scientific methods that God's graciously given to us and combining that with the treasure trove of the historical account. Right. And I want to keep pushing something and, and repeating something, and repetition is the key to learning, right? That's so, what they say. Right. So, again, someone who may just be coming into one episode of our podcast or reading one newsletter may think, oh, okay, great. So they found something that looks like maybe this could have been Moses, and so they changed their date to get this right, to make this work. No, this is that we have we have built up to this. If right, you, if and the you've date been with came us. first. Right, the date came first, and we have found multiple... And by the way, it doesn't stop here. There's much more to come. We get the date right, and we start finding these things in the real world, and now we've come to Mount Sinai. It's led us here. The pottery's here. All the evidence is here. Um, there are so many things that we can point to now to say, obviously, this is the right answer. This We have found the biblical accounts, the ancient Old Testament stories, in the real world by getting the date right. Here's something that's not pertaining necessarily to Mount Sinai, but we talked about that website that I was on, BibleWalks.com. And, and again, just very briefly, let me, let me share something that's on their page. They're talking about the Intermediate Bronze, Middle Bronze 1 era, which is the same time we're talking about. And they say, towards the end of the early Bronze period, most of the large fortified cities of Canaan were depopulated in the Levant. Well, what would would that have been? Well, if we know our Bibles, we know exactly what that would have been. The Israelites, after the wilderness wanderings, came in and wiped them out. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves well, I here. I know we are, but we I can't We haven't got to the conquest yet. <laughs> well, hold on. So here's what it says. Old empires collapsed, like the old kingdom in Egypt, same general time frame, right. that witnessed turbulent times and chaos. And here's what they say. It may have been a result of onset of drier climatic conditions, which resulted in insufficient resources to support the large cities. This was a dramatic social change, the shift from urban to non-urban life. So it's all backwards. The idea is that that these people who used to live in these fortified cities suddenly, for some reason, became wandering almost like nomads out in the Right, wilderness. I think they do say nomads as right. we were looking right. at that. So, so they're saying they left the cities and became nomads, but... Because we have the chronology right for the Israelites, we know that the nom- that the nomads came in and took over the fortified cities right. uh, in the conquest. It's just fascinating to read. It is, and again, I know I'm off topic here, but but we're just trying to show and prove that when the date is right, the evidence has continued to build, and we want people to get a hold of this. We have a great discovery here. We have something that needs to be said. It needs to be heard. People need to find out about this, and it needs to be spread around. It, that's that's our job, and what a great job it is to be able to communicate this. And we want to challenge you. Maybe you would know someone that you could, maybe a pastor, or maybe someone who's interested in archaeology, or, or a young person you know that might benefit from these podcasts and, and letters that we send out or email lists to begin to help us spread the word Folks, God's word is true. I was just reading an article recently in the Smithsonian, which made the comment that biblical archaeology is an emotionally charged field. 
And they're right about that for obvious reasons. Emotionally charged on both sides. Not everybody wants the Bible to be true. Not everybody believes it's true. And um, they're passionate about that side of it. And then there are those who uh, it's very sacred to them, and they're passionate about that side of it. So here at The Biblical Chronologist, we want to help take some of the emotion out, although it is, of course, very dear to us. And we want to look at the facts, and we want to look at the data. And we find so repeatedly, as Steve described, that with the advancements that have been made, especially in biblical chronology, that the Bible is verified repeatedly into its most ancient accounts. Right. And as we said, it keeps building. And I'm going to make a statement here, and it's really kind of a shocking statement because it has to do with a story in the Bible that we're all very familiar with and very aware of and and uh, have believed. But Dr. Ardsma has recently been able to explain how manna was produced in the wilderness. Let me say that again. Dr. Ardsma has recently been able to explain how manna was produced in the wilderness. When I first heard this personally, I scratched my head and thought, what? How manna was produced? Well, we know how manna was produced, right? God did it. God rained bread from heaven. The research here has taken us again to a place where we can see these biblical accounts really did happen. This is not pie in the sky. This is not fairy taleville that we're talking about here. We are talking about the real world. And we are talking about God's real word and God using his real world to accomplish amazing and miraculous things for his people as he's writing his story. There's a patent pending for manna, the substance which appeared on the ground every morning in the desert as God's miraculous provision for his people can now be produced. It can be produced in the laboratory. Ardsma Research and Publishing now has a patent pending status on the biblical manna substance. Yes, and, and I want to congratulate yes. Dr. Ardsma, who, of course, is my dad. I just want to tell him congratulations on bringing the manna discovery to the point of the patent pending status. The patent pending is all for the glory of God. We want these discoveries to be able to be traced back to the Bible science method right. that was used, and we want God to be glorified. And um, for those of you who are chomping at the bit to read all about yes. this um, <clears throat> manna, Bread from Heaven, the manna mystery solved, is currently in the publication process and will soon be available to you. That's right. We're working on it right now, and the final proofing is being done, uh, graphics and artwork, and that is almost completed. It's... um. It's something to see, and we hope you'll stay tuned on that. Well, there's another patent that we want to talk about. So, yes, for the second research update on our podcast today, we um, would like to announce that the patent has been granted for, not manna this time, but for the second of the anti-aging vitamins, vitamin MEPIA. 
has now been patented by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And this is really a big accomplishment. You know, uh, when this was announced on social media, I got a message from a lady that said, my nephew used to work in the patent office in D.C., and he told me about what a process it is to secure a patent on an invention or discovery. So the U.S. Patent Office issued this patent for MEPIA as an anti-aging composition on October the 4th, 2022 for phosphinic acid compositions and methods for reducing aging. And that is the language used on the patent. The anti-aging vitamin supplement is made up of two previously unknown vitamins, both of which have now been patented. An excerpt from the patent uh, states this, quote, the invention relates to aging, in particular to reducing aging in a mammal. The invention is based on the discovery that methylphosphonic acid, MEPIA, and optionally methylphosphonic acid, MEPA, in the diet can reduce aging in a mammal. Thus, the present disclosure provides a composition and a method for reducing aging and or improving health, end of quote. Okay, and that takes us right into Aging 101, which is our little segment where we talk about all that is currently known about aging. Right, let's do a review real quick. Okay. So review lesson Lesson one one. in Aging 101 was aging is not a natural process. Rather, it is a disease process. Okay. That was lesson one. Lesson two was life expectancies in the U.S. today. That was what we had talked about, which is 81 for females and 76 for males. Today's lesson three. Lesson three today is aging disease is a syndrome of three distinct aging diseases. Let me put a side note in here for those who might be new joining us on the podcast and wondering how in the world we got from Bible science, Mount Sinai, and manna to talking about patents for anti-aging vitamins. And I will just say quickly that this has to do with the longevity data in Genesis, which when taken at face value and analyzed and researched with our modern scientific methods, uh, brings us to some very interesting conclusions. And that's what these vitamins are about. So back to lesson three, aging disease is a syndrome of three distinct aging diseases. Because there are two vitamins involved in aging, which we talked about there with the patent, MEPA and MEPIA, each vitamin gives rise to its own distinct vitamin deficiency disease. And vitamin deficiencies are no joke. If left untreated and if they get serious enough, they certainly can be fatal. Um, So the two distinct vitamin deficiency diseases uh, immediately means that aging is not just a simple disease due to just one thing, but it is a syndrome of diseases. Supplementation of the anti-aging vitamins is expected to heal these three diseases in the body, two of them fairly quickly, but the third much more slowly. So the body of a person with aging disease, which of course is the entire population today, the body of 
That person suffering with aging disease has many things going wrong all at once. First, the person doesn't have vitamin MEPA, and this gives rise to many difficulties in the body. Now, interestingly, these difficulties, which are directly due to the lack of MEPA, seem to be fairly quickly resolved. Second, the body doesn't have vitamin MEPIA. This deficiency gives rise to other difficulties, not so much symptomatic as far as that particular deficiency, but mainly because if you do not have that second vitamin being supplemented in your diet, it will lead to the third problem. This is the genetic mutation disease that begins to happen in the body after a certain amount of time without the second vitamin. Right, and this is the working hypothesis here at Ardsma Research and Publishing and the uh, biblical chronologist. All of this is emerging science, very, very important. It is the most complete and best attested theory of aging that has ever been developed. And we're, we're very glad you're getting this information, and we hope you'll pass it on to others. Yes, we do. Well, let's go right into our testimonial for this episode. And today we have Hannah. Hannah is 23 years old and began supplementing the vitamins in January of 2022. Right. So just about a year for her, which is interesting because some of the issues that the MEPA resolves do seem to take about a year for uh, certain individuals. Now, of course, we don't have any official studies yet. Uh, We're just going by testimonials and anecdotal experiences of people. But here she is giving her testimony of her experience after a year. Hannah says, I have been taking the Ardsma vitamins for close to a year. During the months since, I have noticed my sleep is deeper and more restful. It really helps my ability to relax and settle down when I take it close to bedtime. Other factors that I noticed have improved are my nail growth, hair growth, and hair thickening. I really believe the vitamins are making my hair thicker. I used to lose a good amount of hair after washing it, but now my hair seems softer and stronger. I can also tell the vitamins have done much to help my immune system. I work in a child care facility, and recently a flu outbreak affected the school. A couple of my students had the flu, as did the teacher and class next door to my room. I had a mild sickness similar to a cold, but I was negative for flu. I truly believe that was the protection of God, and no doubt due as well to the Ardsma vitamins strengthening my immune system. At times, I have not understood why a, quote, young person needed to take a, quote, anti-aging vitamins. Now, that's a good point, isn't it? Do do young people need to take the, quote, anti-aging vitamins? Hannah is 23. That's right. But she says, but now I understand. It has truly enhanced my overall quality of life. And for that, I give thanks to God. He has provided all we need for healthy living. And it's never too soon to begin taking advantage of his gifts like these vitamins. It's great testimony. Thank you for that, Hannah. And, you know, I had somebody ask me on the phone uh, recently, they had questions about the anti-aging vitamins, and they said, now, do you take these vitamins, or are you too young for that? And, of course, I'm in my 40s, not my 20s like Hannah, but, you know, this the Aging 101 lessons that we've been having are talking about what's happening in the body, and it starts very, very young. The aging disease is not something to delay or say, well, when I get to be 50, 60, 70, I'll start getting these vitamins uh, because your body 
body is already starting down the slippery slope, um, really at quite young ages. And so no, I'm not too young for that. And Hannah's not too young for it. And in fact, you really are protecting your health far out into the future to the best of your ability by taking advantage of these vitamins. Now we come to our quote of note, which I've been looking forward to. This is an old saying of the Pennsylvania Dutch, and Steve's going to share it with us, but I did want to mention that the Ardsma name is a Dutch name and does have some roots in the Pennsylvania Dutch, so that makes it extra fun. Yeah, so if you get the email link that we send with our online show notes, you'll see the picture of the quote, and I'll do my best. I'm not a Pennsylvania Dutchman, but um, here we go. We get too soon old und too late smart. We get too soon old und too late smart. Uh, Of course, that means... Let me put that in American English. We get too soon old and too late smart. I love it. (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) Well, that's an old saying, and it's true, isn't it? It takes years to gain wisdom. What a privilege it would be to have more years to use the wisdom that we slowly gain through life. You know, I remember hearing a pastor say that it seems like by the time we learn a few things in life, God takes us on to heaven. Well, looking at the Genesis lifespan data, you can't help but realize that that it wasn't God's original intention or plan that we leave this life so soon. It really would be a privilege to have more years personally, also for those around us, so that we can share the wisdom that we have gained through life, and we can pour ourselves with more time in the upcoming generation, all the things that we have learned. Now for Helen's view, we invite you to listen in to this miracle story that Dr. Ardsma's wife, Helen, shares with us this month. We married in 1974, and one month later we moved from Cornwall, Ontario to Guelph, Ontario, so that Gerald could attend the University of Guelph for his Bachelor's of Science degree. We packed up our meager belongings, mostly wedding gifts, and along with Gerald's dad and his brother, we began the eight-hour drive to Guelph. We had made no arrangements ahead of time to find a place to live. We just figured, in our naivety, remember Gerald was 19 and I was 20 years old, that we would just get there and look up some ads in a local paper and find a place and move in that same day. Of course, this was long before the internet. We got to Guelph and after inquiring at a few large apartment complexes and learning they were full, we started calling area churches via payphone as there were no cell phones yet to see if they knew of any apartments for rent. We got a lead from one church and drove off to the address given to us. A person at this address did not have an apartment for rent, and she told us of the housing crisis in Guelph that was happening at that time. Housing was so scarce that students were living on the university grounds in tents. It was even on the news. Well, that was a little unsettling. But she was pretty sure that a few houses down from where she lived, there was a vacant rental duplex with both of the apartments empty. She didn't know who owned it or if it was even available. We traipsed over to the house. It was empty of occupants. We wandered around the yard, and then one of the next-door neighbors came out and asked us if they could help us. These people were an elderly Scottish couple with delightful accents whose last names were Hall. 
They were the sweetest people, and they were so very kind to us. We told them that we were maybe interested in renting the duplex next door, and did they know who the owner was and how we could contact them. They told us that two houses down from the rental were some people who were friends of the owners. Off we went, two more houses down. The people were home and told us that the owners of the rental were their friends, but their friends did not live in town, and they had decided to stop renting the duplex due to so much trouble with tenants. One of the things I remember Gerald's dad saying to these folks was something to the effect, well, if you have any trouble with these young people, you can talk to me. The Vashtags, that was their name of the people, invited us to stay for dinner while we waited for them to call the owners. To make a long story short, by the end of the day, the same day we left our hometown, we had a house to rent and could move in the next day. The Vashtags, who were complete strangers to us, offered to put us up for the night, which we gladly accepted. The Vashtags fed us a hearty breakfast. During breakfast, we asked, So where is the university from here? We had no idea where the University of Guelph was located in this city of 135,000 people. We hadn't had time to find out where it was. They replied, Oh, just two blocks from here, easily walked. You can imagine our surprise. We had no vehicle, and our only transportation was one bike and the city buses. After breakfast, we got the key and moved into our apartment. Gerald's dad and brother left to go back to Cornwall that same day. When we walked to the university campus, sure enough, there were tents with students all over the lawn. In subsequent days, we had students knocking on our door as they went house to house looking for any place to stay. This is just one of the many miracle stories of our lives together. It is good to remember what God has done for us how he has gone before us and prepared the way. It gives us courage to continue on this journey of life and trust God to lead and provide what we need. Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I always enjoy these visits with you and look forward to talking with you again in March. God bless you and thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the BC Messenger. Now, next month, we are going to plan to talk about this question. Is it right for Christians to look for the reality of God's work in history? Is it right? Is that a good thing for Christians to look for the reality of God's works in history? Shouldn't we just take the Bible by faith? Now, that's something we've heard. That's something that has been said to us. And it's a good question. So stay tuned. And let me encourage you as we're ending here today as well to make sure that you're signed up to regularly get our email once a month uh, reminding you of the podcast. Go to biblicalchronologist.org. And then on the left-hand side on the bar there, you can see BC Messenger sign up. It's toward the top. Click on that, put in your name and your email, and you will get an email once a month with the link to the podcast and the show notes that are all right there. You can follow along with if you'd like to while listening to it. You can also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And if you use those, you probably know how to do that. 
Yes, and I want to encourage our listeners, uh, if you use Facebook, follow the BC Messenger on Facebook. We are sharing some updates there and generating some questions, discussions, possibly um, with an unbelieving audience, as well as those who are supportive of Bible science research and work. And we would love to have you join us there. Well, thanks for joining us. We hope you have a great day and a great rest of the month. And Lord willing, we will see you again or talk to you again in March of 2023. Bye. See you next time.